0: have you ever seen something witnessed something felt something that literally took your breath away I don't mean that in like literally that we often use it today I mean like literally literally you had to stop and gasp for a second to catch your breath because what you just witnessed or what you just felt literally took your breath away have you ever seen something like that. I know the first time I was on a plane, Um, I was an 18 year old, Uh, our high school, small high school, we were able to raise money throughout our entire school career uh, and go on a senior trip at the end. So we flew from Dallas to Honolulu, Uh, made a few stops on the way, but I remember that first time over uh, the Pacific, you get far enough away from uh, Los Angeles and all you can see in every direction from even several thousand feet in the air is nothing but water. I remember being a little scared uh, at that moment growing up in West Texas where you could see miles in every direction, uh, but it was land, not water. Uh, and so that was disconcerting for me, and I remember literally having to stop for a moment and collect myself looking at that. Maybe you can recollect certain events in your life, certain pictures in your life. I've shared with you before about how uh, I think one of those natural wonders that actually lives up to the hype is uh, um, Niagara Falls in New York. I uh, got to see and witness it, and it is literally awe-inspiring, uh, The amount of, just the amount of water moving through that thing. Uh, it is amazing, and it it's one of those moments where you, you, you literally forget about everything else, and you kind of zero in on something. Now, it can be a spectacular sight, a natural wonder, but that can also happen at other times in our lives, right? Um, my aunt uh, gave the gift to Cheryl and I, for our wedding, of being the wedding coordinator. And one thing that she suggested that actually worked out really well for us uh, was that, I know it's not necessarily like the, the superstitious thing to do. Um, we're not superstitious, we're just a little stitious, right? But uh, it's not necessarily the superstitious thing to do. Uh, it just uh, worked out where we saw each other before our wedding, because she encouraged us uh, to see each other probably, I don't know what, an hour before the wedding uh, and get all that, that emotion out. And I can still, and I'm not just saying this to one points. I can, I can still remember that event and, and literally was taken aback at that moment. I'm sure that many grooms can identify with that. I'm sure many spouses in general. Uh, I'm sure all you ladies out there, the first time you saw your husband in his suit uh, on the wedding day, uh, it probably wasn't nearly the effect that you had on him. But anyway, you probably remember it nonetheless. Uh, I can remember, obviously, when our children came into the world and holding a new life, Um, For the first time, it is an awe-inspiring moment. You're literally taken aback. Have to catch your breath a little bit. Because what you're witnessing, what you're beholding, your mind literally fails to find the right words in that moment. Or maybe even the right response, period. It's not even necessarily a word. Your, Your mind fails to find the right response to what you're seeing, to what you're feeling. It's just something that is literally beyond words. What we're going to see throughout the book of Revelation, and we're going to start to see here in the passage we're going to read this morning, is John's attempt to describe the indescribable. I remember that song several years ago by Chris Tomlin called Indescribable. Everybody remembers that song. I'm sure many of you do. Uh, And that's an apt word when it comes to God, that He is indeed indescribable, that we could literally lift thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of words toward Him to describe Him, and we would still be short for words. We'd still be short for adjectives. There is no particular way of describing God in our human language that actually accurately depicts who God really is. Our words fall short. And even God's inspired word still comes to us in written human language And so the words that we have still don't do full justice to the true majesty of God. And what we're going to see is John trying to describe the majesty of God with the words that he has and doing it well, but also just showing us how amazing God is and how beyond our ability to describe He really is. Words fail in those moments, those breathtaking realities. John's about to be given a message. A message that he's supposed to deliver to the churches around him, and I believe also to us today as the church throughout time. A message that's delivered to him by a terrifying being, but also an incredibly beautiful being. Uh, About one who is majestic, awe-inspiring, yet at the same time causes him to react in fearfulness. Because this God is so big, and we're going to see John try to describe that. And what I want us to hear, what I want you to hear, if you don't hear anything else this morning that I think we can gain from this passage is this truth, this reality. In the end, Jesus is with us, and Jesus is for us. In the end, Jesus is with us, and Jesus is for us. And we're going to know, we're going to learn just a little bit more about who that Jesus really is in this passage. Before we open up and read, let's pray together once more. Father, we are grateful for your presence here with us this morning. God, that you would literally make yourself available in this space. That your Holy Spirit is now among us. God, that as we sing praises to you, you are stirring in between us and even within us, your word tells us. God, we thank you for being around us and indwelling us with your Spirit. God, I pray that through the mysterious and miraculous work of your spirit this morning, God, that you would use your perfect and inspired word to intersect into our lives and to give us a word that would bring transformation, that would bring us closer to you, now that would change the way that we think, the way that we live, the way that we follow you and what we think about you. God, may you leave us transformed through an encounter with your word and with your spirit this morning. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was called, was, excuse me, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud, a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We see a little bit in the John's situation in writing this letter right off the bat. He identifies himself again amongst the uh, congregation of believers. Uh, John had already called himself a servant. We'd already learned that from earlier in this book. Uh, But here he, he shows himself as a brother. A brother in Christ and a partner in everything that they're going through. He says that he's a partner in the tribulation. He's a partner in the difficulty that they're facing. And again, we've already talked about this a little bit, but these are Christians living in the uh, first century Roman world uh, where they're undergoing persecution. There's already kind of the persecution from their own people, the Jewish people. uh, But the Roman persecution is ramping up more and more as we go along. They're dealing with that. They're maybe trying to find places in hiding. I don't know exactly what all is going on, but we know it's not good for a lot of them that would identify as Christian to be living openly in the Roman Empire at this time. They're undergoing persecution. Paul, excuse me, John, identifies with them in that, calling himself a partner in the tribulation, one who is going through that on his own as well, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. But he's also a partner in the kingdom. Uh, he's a partner in building the kingdom, uh, that even though he's on an island named Patmos, by himself, he's still in the process of being a kingdom builder. He still has a message, and he still has a purpose. Uh, He still has these words that he wants someone to take and to send to all the seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, so that they might receive the word. And we today are proof that his ministry was indeed carried out as we, we read these words that were meant for a specific group of people, but also the entire church partners with them in their tribulation. He partners with them in the kingdom, and he also partners with them in their patient endurance. Waiting for the day to come when the kingdom would be realized fully. Waiting for the day to come when everything would be set right. John is waiting for that just like the people to whom he's writing despite all of the bad things happening around them. And so John identifies who he is and what he's going through and that he's there with them in the midst of all that they're do- dealing with. And he says that he's writing from an island named Patmos. Patmos is just a small piece of land off the coast of modern-day Turkey Uh, We would then call Asia Minor, Asia, part of the Roman Empire at the time, uh, just off the the coast from where the seven churches are to which he's about to address. Uh, And if you've ever, if you ever look at the map, you know, the Aegean Sea, like in between Greece, Greece and Turkey, there's all kinds of islands within there. And what would often happen in that day uh, is that when there was a political problem Uh, a a criminal, someone who was causing issues that Rome wanted to deal with without executing, uh, as they would often just kind of expel them uh, to one of these islands. Uh, And they would just be stuck there lampooned on the island without any way to get off. And that's what happened to John. Uh, he was put on one of these islands because he was becoming, most likely as we see from the, from the testimony from the word of God that he talks about, he was becoming a problem to the Romans. They weren't liking the message that he was preaching. They weren't liking the effect that he was having on people, likely the people right there in Asia Minor. Uh, he probably knew these churches and had visited them before. They weren't appreciative of the kind of influence he was having and so they just put him on an island and he can't do any harm. He's just there. He's stuck on an island. Obviously, they weren't you know, prepared for him to write a letter and send it that would end up changing the world that people would be reading thousands of years later, but that's indeed what happened. And while he's on Patmos, going through this time of expulsion, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, is what he says. The Lord's Day, Sunday, we can most likely assume that that's what he means. Uh, Very early on in the early church, uh, they believed that the day Jesus was resurrected, they would call that the Lord's Day. Uh, And so Sunday he's there, uh, and perhaps he's worshiping when he says that he's in the Spirit. Uh, That's kind of the picture that we get. Uh, Is that John is, is deep in worship, perhaps deep in prayer, and then it's in this moment that he gets this vision that's going to take up really the rest of the book. And he hears behind him a voice, like a trumpet. A trumpet is often used in Scripture because it's a loud and clear symbol that something's about to go down. It would announce <coughs> royalty on their way into a town. It wouldn't be uh, the preface of some major announcement in a kingdom. Uh, it was to get people's attention. Jesus himself used trumpet. Uh, the idea of a trumpet is something about the, uh, the last days, that when the last trumpet blows, the end would come. Uh, that idea of a trumpet being a loud and clear symbol that something was important, something important was about to happen, and John says he hears behind him a voice that sounds like a loud trumpet. And so, what do you do when you hear a voice that sounds like a loud trumpet? Well, you turn around and see what the heck's going on, and that's exactly what John did. He turned around and he's shown a heavenly throne room vision. And now we get into some of the repeating ideas of Revelation, some of the symbolism that goes on. Uh, We see the number seven pop up over and over again, because again, in Greek, that's the number of completion. And John sees seven golden lampstands, and one who looked like a son of man walking in their midst. Now, another thing that John does pretty often in the book of Revelation is borrow from some Old Testament prophecy. And in Zechariah 4, we have a prophecy about a golden lampstand that God is in the midst of. That someone is having a conversation, Zechariah having a conversation with someone about what that lampstand represents. And what that lampstand in Zechariah 4 is thought to represent is the fulfillment of the promise of God to rebuild Israel. Uh, for the people of Israel, for their light to shine in the world, just like God always meant for it to be, that one day God would come and Zechariah, written during a period where Israelite was spread out, where uh, the temple was torn down, and so there's a prophecy about perhaps the temple being rebuilt, and so the idea is that's what they were looking forward to, Zechariah was looking forward to, and that did indeed happen, but John goes back and borrows that idea of a lampstand to show that, as he explains later in the chapter, that it's actually the churches that John is writing to that are the seven lampstands, that are those who are in the presence of God. And so if we take that symbolism from Zechariah and we recognize that it's talking about the people of God being fully realized in the way that they're always supposed to be, what we see in Revelation is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to rebuild His people. To build His people into exactly what they were supposed to be all along. And in this case, it's not the nation of Israel, but it is rather the church, which is the extension of the nation of Israel, the spiritual extension of the nation of Israel who has been grafted into the Israelite people. That is you and I and everyone on the planet who claims Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so when John writes this about the churches being gathered, don't just read the seven churches that he mentions but read again the idea of seven complete John is speaking about the entire church all of the church throughout space and time that Jesus himself is walking among them as they give their light in the room with the lampstands the ultimate fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy and then just as John will quote prophets like Zechariah he quotes Daniel a ton And one of Daniel's favorite words to talk about Jesus or the coming Messiah or the one who would judge at the end is the Son of Man. And he sees, John sees in the middle of the lampstands, one who looks like a Son of Man. And he begins to describe him as best he can. And this is where I see John just trying to use his words to the best of his ability. And this is what he says about the one he sees in the middle of the lampstands. He's wearing a long robe with a golden sash, showing royalty, Signifying a king, he has hair that is so white that he would compare it to wool, like white wool, not even wool, like snow. His hair is so white and so pure that it looks like snow upon his head. And in the Bible, ha- white hair is often a sign of wisdom. But hey, some of us patting ourselves on the back, right? I don't have any hair. If you got white hair, that's awesome. Uh, that means you're wise. Uh, and so. John is is pointing that out about how, how God and Jesus, the wisdom that he has, the crown of wisdom upon his head that can only come from God. His eyes are like burning fire. Have you ever looked at someone that when they returned your gaze, it almost looked like they were looking into your soul? Nobody ever had that experience? I hope that you have, right? You've had that experience when You really knew that you were in love with someone for the first time, and you you made that eye contact. There was just something about that. Jesus, his eyes are burning with fire in a way that pierces the hardness of our heart and sees us, sees into us in a way that no one else can. His feet are like burnished bronze. Now, if you're like me, when you're reading through, you're like, okay, I'm tracking so far. I get the ideas. Uh, You know, uh, eyes like fire, really white hair. Burnished bronze, what in the world is that? Uh, you know, I don't know enough about metalwork to know what burnished bronze means. Uh, and so I had to dig a little bit and read a little bit. But the gist of it, whether it's bronze or brass or whatever metal is being talked about in the Greek, uh, is that imagine Jesus' feet glowing like metal that just came out of the furnace. Uh, now maybe you've seen that before. Metal that's about to be molded and how it burns white hot. That Jesus' feet are to be seen in that way. Now, Jesus' feet are bare, other than that. Now, and that's normal for a priest who would minister for in, on behalf of God's people in the presence of God. It's normal for his feet to be bare, for the priest to go in to see God with his feet bare, but those bare feet are burning like white hot metal. And now, what in the world? What that mean? In that we see the purity of Jesus. That's why the metal is white hot, because the impurities have been burned out of it. We see the strength of Jesus in those burnished bronze feet. And then we see from his mouth coming a sharp two-edged sword, which God's word is compared in Scripture to a two-edged sword that separates bone from marrow, that pierces our hearts, and His face is like the sun in full strength so burning white hot that you can barely look at it. Matter of fact, you can't. You remember being told that as a child, right? Don't look at the sun, you'll burn your eyes. Anybody else remember that? But you always had to for a second. Uh, and then, you know, you would look away and there would be spots all over like, oh yeah, well, I guess they were right. Uh, we well, don't do that again. Um, but that's, that's what's beholding the face of Jesus is like trying to look at the intensity of the sun on a clear day in Texas in summer. Uh, You just can't stare that long. You can glance, but there's something so powerful about it that even glancing at it takes your breath away. And then, of course, we see him holding in his right hand the hand of power and authority, the seven stars that we're later told are the seven angels to the seven churches. Here's an exercise for you. I would encourage you to, on your own free time, go in your quiet room, in your quiet time, wherever, and try to actually visualize what John's talking about. I know there's some amongst you that are very visual thinkers, and so this should be easy for you. Go in a room and just close your eyes, remove all distraction, and imagine what John was seeing in front of him. What it would have been like to behold that being. If you're able to do that, you're gonna understand why John's response is what it is. Because we learn after he sees everything that he, oh, his own words, fell on the ground as though he were dead. Right? And again, this isn't abnormal in scripture. Anytime anybody sees a heavenly being, they usually freak out a bit in scripture. And are have to, they have to be told very quickly, don't be afraid, fear not. Because uh, what they're seeing is amazing. I think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, Uh, where he, uh, you know, gets an image or gets a vision of God, and he says to himself, "'Woe in me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips.'" And he, too, falls to the ground prostrate before God. There is something about encountering the majesty of God that should be unnerving. Like, have we gotten so casual with God that we think we could literally be in His presence and be like, "'Hey, what's up, God?' Long time no see, you know, you and your boy are hanging out, you know, there's something about God being a friend that's, there's goodness in that. But if you were to actually see the person of God in heaven today, would there not be a sense of knees buckling, shaking even at the power of what you're seeing? There should be, and guess what, there's nothing wrong with that. I know in our modern culture, we thought everything needs to be approachable, and anybody who's not approachable is a jerk, and we need to, you know, expel those people and never pay attention to them. Uh, approachability, uh, you know, the kind of guy you could just hang out with, that's what everybody wants to be around, right? We don't want somebody who's hoity-toity, we want somebody who's approachable, that's the kind of leaders that we're looking for, and there's a lot of good to be said about that, but there is a part of God that should be deemed as holy and sovereign and beyond us. And there is a part of us in our creatureliness, in our humanness that when we think about encountering God in all His power, the God who would speak the universe into existence, when we think about encountering a star-breathing God there should be a part of us that says, whoa, wow, something is different about this God. Something is amazing about this God. I don't know how to describe him, and I don't even really know how to respond. And so what am I going to do? This is what John does. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to fall on my face like I'm a dead man because I have no idea how to respond to this God who is here before me and has a message for me despite all of my frailty, despite all of my humanness. This God wants to use me for something. Why in the world would this amazing God who I can't even look at his face without my eyes burning, why would this God consider me worthy of visiting me? There ought to be a part, of a part of us that responds that way to the holiness of God. That's how amazing our God is. Our God could end everything in a moment. In a breath. Our God could end all things. In an instant. But He doesn't. And here's what happens with our God. Even though He is this holy and this sovereign. Even though John responds rightly by laying prostrate before the Lord and not saying anything What we have next is the unapproachable God suddenly becoming an approachable God when he, Jesus, lays his right hand, again the hand of power and authority, upon John and he says, fear not for I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who died and then came back. And he starts talking about all the things that he's done. And we're learning that this amazing, powerful, unapproachable Jesus is also the Jesus that's right there with John in the moment, giving him the direction and instruction about the word that he once shared. I'm the God who is unapproachable, but I'm approaching you. I was dead, but now I'm alive. I have the keys of death and Hades. Hades, of course, would have been the Greek understanding of the underworld. We can also leave that as some sort of hellish reality or hell itself. Uh, And and Jesus has power over all of that. Not only does he have power, remember when you were a kid and you were at school and the custodian would walk by with that huge keychain, and you would think, dude, that guy, he's got to be the boss, right? Like he's got all of the keys. He can get anywhere in the school. Like there's nowhere that he can't go. If I want to get into a room that's locked, I just need to ask that guy and he can open it what it must have been like, you thought, as a kid, to have the power of the keychain, right? Especially if they had that, it had the thing where, like, you pull it out and then they let go and it zipped back. And how cool that was, right? You thought about how amazing that was and how powerful that person must have been. And they just had, like, the keys into the janitor's closet and maybe the principal's office, which was a pretty big deal if you could get it. But Jesus himself, when I see it this way, it's just me, this isn't the way it really is, I'm just imagining this in my own head has the keys of death and Hades dangling from his belt. And when you look at him, you're reminded of the power that he has over death and Hades. Are you afraid of death? My God has the keys to death hanging off his belt. Are you afraid of the evil one and the authority that evil might have over us? Our God has the keys to the place where one day he's going to cast the evil one into a lake of fire to never return, lock the door, throw away that key, and that victory is going to be sealed once and for all. Aren't we grateful that we follow the God of the keys? This is our God. The one who has the keys of death and Hades on his belt. Write, he says to John. Write about the things you've seen. Write about what you're seeing. Write about what's going to take place afterwards. And we're getting, we talked about this already, but kind of the three modes of Revelation, you're going to read about things that have happened, you're going to read about things that are happening in their day, things that are happening in our day, and you're going to read about things that will happen when the end comes. And then Revelation 1 ends as if it's like the introduction into the book, preparing us for a lot of other symbolism that's going to take place. And if you're like me, you're reading through, you know, you're reading through the first eight verses. You're like, oh, this is going well. This feels like a normal letter. Uh, You know, there's some some introduction, there's some word. And then all of a sudden we have these lampstands and stars and don't know what's going on. But then at the end of chapter 1, Jesus says through John, okay, I'm going to tell you what this symbol means. The seven lampstands are the seven churches and the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, you're going to read through the rest of Revelation and you're going to think, can we do that again? Like, can you come back and tell us what all the symbols mean directly instead of leaving us to try to figure it out on our own? But God is nice to us in the first chapter. He says, here you go. Here's what those symbols mean. Is it is the seven lampstands, seven churches, seven uh, stars are the angels that go to the churches. And then over the next couple chapters, chapter two and three, we're going to see God say to each of the angels of each of the churches a particular word. Uh, And we're going to be doing that the next several weeks and seeing how that word applies to us. It's not just a message for seven particular churches, even though it is that. It's a message for all the church. Every single message goes for all of the entire church. But what I want us to see today before we move on to that passage is that if the churches are, the church is to be represented by the seven golden lampstands, don't miss the part of the vision. For the one who looks like the Son of Man, Jesus Himself, is walking amongst the lampstands. What does that tell us? That tells us that Jesus is among His people. That Jesus is present within His church today, yesterday, and forever. That He is always present with His church. Jesus Himself is in the midst of the churches. He is in our midst today. Even now, if we really believe what the Bible says, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is here among us and available to us today. Yea, the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ is even living within you to convict and to encourage, to edify and to call. The Holy Spirit lives among us and within us Even today, God himself is still meandering around through the uh, candlesticks. God is still giving that same message. And not only does God have a place in his presence with the churches today, but he also has a word for the churches today. Jesus himself speaks to the churches. God still speaks to us through his word. God speaks to us still through his spirit. Jesus himself still has a message for the seven golden lampstands. He still desires to dwell with us and to speak with us primarily through his word and through prayer. God still has a word and still wants to communicate, still wants to be involved in the life of his church. And in the end, Jesus is with us and Jesus is for us. And when I say Jesus, I'm talking about the one whose feet glow like burnished bronze. I'm talking about the one whose face shines like the sun and all of its brilliance. I'm talking about the one, well, I even skipped one of the descriptors, whose voice is like the sound of roaring waters. That's one of my favorite descriptions in Revelation, one that I'll probably come back to. Because if I were John, and I didn't have any of our modern day noise to allude to, when you think of noise, we have a monopoly on noise compared to most of the history of humankind, right? We have jet engines, uh, we have... Like planes flying overhead. We have the interstate traffic. Uh, we have all sorts of noise that didn't exist for most of the history of mankind. And so when John is writing about noise, something that's loud, he talks about a trumpet first, but then he also says the sound of roaring waters. And I would imagine, I can't think of anything in the ancient world that would have been louder. And again, we're talking about somebody marooned on an island who heard roaring waters probably 24 7, because Patmos wasn't a big area. You couldn't get away from the view of the water. And so he probably heard waves crashing all of the time. If you've ever been on an ocean or anybody of water when it's really tumultuous, when the the swells are really high, when there's thunder and lightning in the distance, there is no sound like that. If you've ever sat at the base or the top of a waterfall and heard waters roaring, if you've ever been in, in, in Texas during a flash flood and you hear the waters roar down a creek, there is nothing like that sound. And so when John talks about the voice of God, he talks about this voice like the roaring waters. That's who I'm talking about when I talk about Jesus. I'm talking about a big God talking about a big God. Man, we can't forget how big our God is sometimes. I'm talking about the God who is louder than you can imagine, who is more beautiful than you can imagine, who is more terrifying than you can imagine, in the best possible way. And it's this Jesus who comes to us, dwells in us, and amongst us. It's this Jesus who still wants to communicate His purpose to us on a daily basis. It's this Jesus who still comes to John and puts his hand on him and says, fear not. I'm the one who is dead and is dead no longer. When you pray, it's this Jesus that you're talking to. When you sing a song of worship, it's this Jesus that you adore. When you, in your worst possible moments, ask for healing or for rescue, it is this God's name upon which you're calling. When you doubt God, it's this God you're doubting. When you think that God can't save that person, or heal that person, or change your life, it's this God who you're doubting. If you were squinting at His face because of the power of the light coming off His face, would you really doubt? In the same way, Uh, everybody goes through seasons of doubt, I'm right there with you, I understand that I just want to draw our attention back to the reality of who our God is and this God is with us and is for us amen to that aren't we glad that this God is for us this big God so we have nothing to fear once you realize who God really is, it puts a lot of things in, in perspectives. And your fear is one of them. During our time of invitation, here in just a moment, if anyone has never decided to follow this Jesus as Savior, I wanna tell you it's the best decision you could possibly ever make. I would love to talk with you about it while we're singing or directly after the service. You'll hang around, I'll hang around, we can talk then. If you're watching us online and want somebody to talk to, just message us on Facebook and we'll connect with you as soon as possible. And for those of you who do believe in and follow Jesus, we're going to sing a couple more songs to Him. Keep in mind who you're singing to. I'm not saying that so you'll be fearful. I'm saying that so you'll be awestruck at the reality of the God that you're worshiping. And the next time you pray to God in the coming week, remember that it's this God that you're praying to. He's got it, and He's got you, and He's for you. Worship God and give Him thanks during our final time of praise. I'll be down here to pray with you about this or anything else. The altar steps will be open if you'd like to come and pray there. You can always certainly pray right where you are at. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Our band is going to come lead us in a couple more songs. And again, as they do, may you just respond to however God is calling. Father, again, we thank you for being right here with us and within us. God, you are a good God. You are an amazing God. You are bigger than I thought you were. And God, we pause in this moment to give you thanks in awe, with mouth agape, when we consider just how amazing you really are. God, may you remind us in this moment and beyond of your power, of your capacity, of your godness, And still, God, in your infinite wisdom, despite all of that, you still make yourself available to me, to us. Even though I have made myself your enemy in times in my life. That you would still come and lay your hand on me and call me to you and call me to purpose God that is beyond me so God I give you thanks for choosing to love me even though you didn't have to You, even though I could have just been an aunt to you God you love me and I thank you for that God you are worthy of all the praise we can give and so much more God, if there's anyone here who does not know you, Lord, may you convict. May you call them home. And for those of us who do know you, God, may you remind us of who we worship. May you remind us of who we are praying to even now. God, may you remind us of who you are and that you still love us. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.